The Duty of Women, Chapter 19 After our meal, Tom Cook left to go to London Bridge, where he was working. I saw his figure disappearing down the lane, and again I wished that I could look after him, as he looked after me. But I didn't have time to think too much, as I had to get back to Hampton Court. Will and I set off. Even with our good horses, it took several hours. As we approached the palace, Will said, I will see you again, Cat, if you wish. I didn't know what he wanted. Did he mean that he was prepared to bring you up, my daughter? Yes, I would like that, I said. I wanted to say more, but a stable hand had come up to take the horses and was asking Will when they would be needed again. I must go to the Queen. I started to walk towards her apartments. Turning back, I saw Will heading in the opposite direction. For a moment, he turned round, saw me and waved. I waved back. What a handsome man he was and how I loved him. I watched until he turned a corner and I could see him no more. When I arrived at the Queen's apartments, all was unusually quiet. I could imagine that people had sore heads after the celebrations last night, but even the normally cheery chambermaids were subdued. I knew that there had been plans to move the royal household later in the day, but no one was packing. I went up to a group of ladies, clustering around Anne Seymour, hoping to overhear something. It is nothing of concern, she was saying, in an unnaturally calm voice. But she has not slept, my lady. She was up all night, said one small, worried-looking woman. She has the flux, nothing serious, and now she is feeling better, said Lady Seymour. The king has decided not to move his household today, simply to allow her time to get her strength back. She turned and saw me. You should not have given her that need, cat. She has been eating and drinking too many sweet things. It is no wonder that she has been sick. I bobbed a curtsy. I'm sorry, my lady. The Queen asked me to get it. She sent me to Wolf Hall for that reason. Lady Anne Seymour snorted. She has been indulged too much. How will she recover if she continues to drink such sickly stuff? Now go to her and play something quiet and soothing. She is awake, but weak. I curtsied again and hurried into the Queen's bedchamber. She was lying in the great state bed. 
but she was no longer animated. Her eyes darted towards me and then to the other ladies in the chamber. A tired little smile appeared on her face and she tilted her head slightly as if to invite me to her bedside. I walked towards her and curtsied and one of the women pointed at a chair where I was to sit. Not a word was spoken. I played for several hours. At first, the Queen watched me intently with wakeful eyes, but as I continued, her eyelids drooped, and at last she fell into a deep sleep. She looked what she was, just an exhausted little girl. I finished and gently slipped out of the chamber. As I did, all but one of the ladies followed me. I looked back and she was sitting in the chair that I had just left. The next day, she was sitting up in bed, wearing a new loose gown of creamy silk. She called me over and asked me to play Tandernaken, a lively piece. I noticed she was again eating sweetmeats and smiled to myself. Jane may be a timid woman, but nothing would keep her from her march pain and almonds. We spent a happy morning with her ladies, bringing in and showing her gifts that had been left for her. The king came in, in a hurry. He was due to go hunting, but wanted to check on his wife. I'm glad to see you well again, sweetheart, he said, planting a kiss on her forehead before he turned to the large cradle beside her. And how is our prince today? he asked jovially, poking his large finger onto the baby's head. The infant woke and startled into a loud, piercing cry. The king withdrew his finger and laughed out loud. That's a boy, already giving orders what to do. You keep these women in line. Elizabeth Seymour hurried forward and picked Prince Edward up. He needs a feed, your majesty, she said, rocking the baby up and down. Shall I take him to the wet nurse? Take him, take him, the king ordered, and let him drink his fill. Bring him straight back when he's finished, the queen called out. Everyone smiled. The queen was a loving mother and so much stronger than the day before. All was well. The Queen was indeed most loving. The next two days she was often to be found with Prince Edward nestled in beside her on the great bed. Look at his toes, she exulted, just so small and so well formed. I knew that wonder, that wonder of having made a child, fashioned him from your own body, then looking at him and marvelling at his perfection. She popped her little finger into his rosebud mouth and let him suck at it. Eddie, Eddie, my darling, you're mine, sweetheart. I made you, every inch of you. You and I will always be together. I will teach you your prayers, my little Eddie, and show you how to write your name. Prince Edward gurgled. I will choose a wife for you and beat her if she is unkind to you, the Queen murmured. I was a little surprised at this. I could not imagine our queen beating anyone. Although, poor girl, she had been beaten often by her own parents. Maybe she thought beatings were the way to learn. But for the moment, it was love that was on her mind. 
She sang to the baby, said prayers over his head and kissed him on both cheeks. The wet nurse was only allowed to take him for feeds and changes. Apart from that, he was with the Queen night and day. I loved those days, although they also made me feel sad. I longed for you, daughter, while I was playing for a Queen's child. Prince Edward was a beautiful baby with his fair hair and blue eyes, but he was nowhere near as beautiful as you, my darling little brown-eyed flame girl. I had time during those quiet moments to think ahead and plan how I might bring you to London. Once Queen Jane returned to her duties, I would ask her if I could be paid more and explain about you. I already had the small pension Queen Catherine had given me, and I knew that Thomas Wyatt would give me more money. But then could I afford a house on my own? I had a flash of inspiration. Maria, Lady Willoughby, had told me she would always be there for me. Might she find an apartment somewhere, either in her grand house or in one of the small houses she owned? I suddenly remembered Jane, Lady Willoughby's servant maid, who had had to leave her own baby behind to work. Maybe I could employ her as a nursemaid and she could look after you and her own baby at the same time. It didn't seem an impossible dream. And where would Will fit in? He loved me, of that I was sure. But he was a proud man and he struggled with the idea of bringing up another man's baby. I wondered if he'd decided against reuniting with me. I hadn't seen him for a few days. He was, as always, busy on Cromwell's orders. I couldn't help but hope that he would find me and everything would be all right again. But so far, nothing. On Friday evening, Lady Jane said she felt unwell again. She was cold and shivery and her face was almost transparent. Lady Seymour told me to go. She needs rest, Cat. Take tomorrow off. I was happy to do that. That Saturday was a crisp, clear October day with golden sunshine gilding the leaves of the trees. I spent the day wandering in the park, making plans for the future. When you could walk, daughter, I would take you into these great parks and show you the trees and the birds that sang. I would teach you their names and the names of the different flowers that grew in the spring. I wondered whether I should try to find Will, but I didn't know which palace he was working in at the moment and it was probably easier to wait until we relocated to London. On the Sunday morning, I went to chapel with the rest of the royal household. There were prayers for the Queen, but that was normal. We always prayed for the health of the King and Queen. Everyone in the chapel was in a good mood. We had a prince. Peace and prosperity beckoned. After the service ended, people trailed out, chatting and laughing, talking about the wonderful autumn weather we were having that year. I didn't see any of the Queen's immediate household, but again, that was normal. Since she'd been with child, she had often attended services in her own apartments. I wondered if she was drinking wine with her chaplain, no doubt to the disapproval of Anne Seymour. But when I arrived, the Queen's bedchamber door was shut. Anne Seymour came up to me. 
She is still unwell, but she has been asking for you. You may enter and play, but it must be godly. I tiptoed into the room. The curtains were drawn and it was dark. I could just make out the Queen lying with her back to me. There were women in the room, but she paid them no attention. When she heard the door, she whispered, Is that Cat? Yes, Your Majesty. Play, Cat. She did not look at me as she spoke. This was the first time I feared for her. She had turned her back on everyone, even Prince Edward. But all I could do was to obey her. I played Laudes Deo by Robert Johnson, though praising God was the last thing on my mind. She wasn't tossing and turning. She was just lying still, as if she no longer wished to look at anyone. Usually, my lute playing becomes a conversation between me and the audience and God. But on that day, it felt like I was talking to no one. I left late that night and lay on my pallet bed in the dormitory, praying for the Queen, imploring God to let her recover. The next day, I was not allowed in her bedchamber. Prince Edward's cradle was now in the outer chamber. The Queen is too ill to see him, I was told. He disturbs her. And so the ladies took it in turns to rock him and sing to him as if all was well. I stayed with them, playing sometimes to lighten the atmosphere. In truth, without my lute and Prince Edward, the outer chamber would have been almost silent. No one knew what to say. All we could do is keep praying silently. O oh Lord, deliver our Queen from danger. In the name of Jeju, do not let her die. The King came late that night. He looked haggard as if he had not slept. He was accompanied by the Archbishop of Canterbury, who looked as if he'd been crying. They both went straight into the Queen's bedchamber without stopping to pet Prince Edward. The great door swung shut, leaving us outside, wondering what they were saying to her. Was she able to hear them, I wondered. Anne Seymour had told me she was barely conscious now and was beyond speech. I heard the murmur of the Archbishop's voice and realised he was giving her the last rites. We all sat there outside her chamber, listening and praying for her. Then the door opened and the Archbishop came out. He made the sign of the cross to us, bowed his head and left. It was deathly silent, except for the infant snores of the Prince. Every now and then the candles would flicker and we would all look up, as if someone was entering the chamber. And then we heard it. It was a little wail, but it wasn't the baby's. It got louder, growing to become a howl, a scream of anguish, then sobbing, sobbing, as if his heart would break. Because, of course, it was the king who was crying over the bedside of his dying wife. Only a week ago, she'd been entertaining guests at the royal christening and he had been so happy. Now she was leaving him, the only woman who had ever given him what he wanted. We waited, frozen, for at least an hour. 
We could not leave the chamber in case the Queen needed something. But it felt wrong to be there, overhearing the King's desperate grief. I would never forget it that night when he showed himself to be human, but I would never want to live through it again. At last the King emerged, his face swollen and red. We all curtsied, but he walked straight past us without a look. Of course, we were nobodies, and it didn't really matter what we had heard. He opened the door and left without a backward glance. Rising up from my curtsy, I saw a lady going towards the Queen's door. She was an older woman, not one of the maids of honour, maybe even a maid going to sponge the Queen's face. But then she turned and looked at me. It was Catherine. I knew it. Her little round body, her old-fashioned hood, her dignity. Her blue eyes glanced at me fondly before she went into the room. I knew then that she had come to fetch Queen Jane. She had loved Jane and been kind to her. She was going to help ease Jane's passage into the next world, just as she had eased Jane's passage into the Queen's household. A moment later, someone sat beside me with a rustle of silk and a breath of violets. Queen Anne turned to me, her black eyes shining. I hope she will sing better in paradise, she whispered, smiling her dazzling smile, and then disappeared. I looked at the space beside me. Nothing there, just a violet petal on the cushion. I pinched myself. I was imagining too much. I had known and lost two queens, and now a third. I suddenly felt unutterably burdened and bent my head to weep. I realised that all of the ladies were crying now, some saying prayers, some calling on God for mercy. On our knees, we were sisters, crying for a kind young woman who had inexplicably got mixed up in power politics, given the king a son and was about to pay for it with her life. She died early the next morning, the death of a queen, so different from the last two. I remembered Henry and Anne greeting Catherine's death by wearing yellow, almost dancing on her grave. And then Anne being murdered. This time the king had not celebrated. He had not appeared at all. Instead, he had brought innocent little Jane Seymour into his trap and married her. It seemed, though, that he did love her. He left Hampton Court that morning and went to Isha Place, where he went into his chamber and did not emerge for several days. Everything around the court stopped. There were, of course, the embalmers that came and prepared Jane Seymour's body for the lying in state in the present chamber. She wore a gown of gold tissue and there was a small crown on her head. There were guests who came to pay their respects, who needed to be looked after with wine and biscuits and maybe a quiet place to weep. There was the baby to care for, but the wet nurse took over those duties with aplomb. The truth was, there was very little for many of us to do. I was the Queen's musician, and now there was not a Queen, 
nor anyone in charge. Those of us in the Queen's household were grieving for her, but also anxious about our own positions. Now there was no Queen, what would happen to us? For the first time in his reign, the King was single, with no prospective spouse in view. A lot of us had worked for all three Queens, and now we didn't know what was to happen to us. We soon found out. Lady Mary was to be put in charge of the late Queen's household after the funeral and she would be responsible for the staff. The King had told her to release most of us, retaining only the key ladies who would move over to her. She would speak to us after the funeral to tell us what was going to happen. I didn't look forward to it. The Queen's body was moved from Hampton Court on November the 8th processing over several days towards St George's Chapel in Windsor. Cromwell had found 200 poor men to process after the hearse with torches and they were followed by the chief mourner, Lady Mary, on a horse draped in black velvet. After her were 29 noblewomen, one for each year of the Queen's life. Then most of the nobles of court. The only exception was the king. He did not attend funerals. The monarch never did. But I heard that he summoned Cromwell to him afterwards and asked him for every detail of what had happened. The night the hearse arrived at Windsor, there was a vigil at St George's Chapel with the Lady Mary silently presiding all night. I peeped in and saw her, very serious and yet composed, in her black velvet and black hood. She had loved Jane, I thought, but she must be relishing these ceremonials. For there she was, right back in the centre of the court, representing the king. The next day, the ladies covered the queen's coffin in black velvet for the singing of the masses and the laments. There was a wooden effigy of Jane which was placed on top of the coffin. On November the 12th, the Queen was finally laid to rest in a vault underneath the Garter Chapel. Her brothers were there and Lords Norfolk and Suffolk, Thomas Cromwell and all of those who had so recently been present at the christening of Prince Edward. Then there were the ambassadors and the representatives of the monarchs from all over Europe. I watched them enter the chapel along with many of the servants standing outside. Of course, we weren't allowed inside. We were not important enough. Coming towards the end, I saw a familiar figure. I hadn't seen him for some time and didn't expect to see him now. His head was bowed and he walked now without his usual swagger. But it was undeniably Sir Thomas Wyatt. He must have been visiting London to report to the King before all this happened and so had come to pay his respects. He caught sight of me as he walked past and gave an imperceptible bow of the head. Later, he caught me as the congregation dispersed. Cat, it's good to see you, though on such a sad day. Are you well? I am indeed, I answered, but I need to speak with you. Do you have time? For you, Cat, always, he said, with a little of the old sparkle in his eyes. You said that I should approach you if I needed money. 
I did, indeed. What do you need? I explained to him that I wished to be together with you again, Alice, but that I needed funds to be able to do that. I told him that I was afraid I would be dismissed by Lady Mary, who'd never liked me anyway. He smiled his merry smile. She never liked me either. Best to leave the court, cat. Bring up your baby. You need not worry about funds. Ever. I was so overwhelmed by his generosity that I started to cry. Fortunately, there were many other people at this occasion with tears flowing down their faces, so it occasioned little comment, except from Tom Wyatt. Don't cry, cat. All will be well, I promise. He looked gently at me. Are you all right? Are you on your own now? I sniffed at him. Yes, I think so. Very quietly, he said, You know I have someone now. She is content to live in the background, and we make a good pair. So, although I will always support you, I cannot repeat my offer to live with you. He looked so contrite that it made me smile. No, Tom, I understand that. I'm still hoping for Will. So even if you were to offer again, I couldn't accept you. He beamed at me. He is an idiot, that boy. I have a good mind to go and shake some sense into him. This was not what I wanted. Please, Tom, don't do that. He's a proud man. I believe if I give him time, I may win him back. But he has to accept that if we're to live together, Alice is part of the bargain. Tom smiled and thumped me on the back. He will, he will. I will send my man to you tonight with some money for the next year. And kiss my daughter for me, will you? With that, he bowed his head again and made his way back through the crowds to join the courtiers who were entering the palace for refreshments. A week later, I was summoned to meet with Lady Mary. She was sitting in the presence chamber, in the chair that Jane had perched on. Small though Mary was, she inhabited that room with an enormous presence. All of those in the chamber listened respectfully to her, and there was no animated chatter as there had been. I was called up to speak to her. I went quickly to her chair and then curtsied deeply. Rising from the curtsy, I saw that she was observing me closely with her sharp blue eyes. Cat, she said, my mother loved you, I know. I felt tears springing into my eyes. Thank you, my lady. I loved her too. Mary clicked her fingers in irritation. It was not an appropriate relationship, she declared, between a queen and a servant. I never understood why she did it. I wanted to shout at her, tell her that I was there for the queen in the many lonely times when her family were not, that I had loved her truly without any thought of advantage. And if only she knew that I was in fact her sister but that would add to my problems. She had a streak of her father's ruthlessness and she would have got rid of me if she'd known. As it was, she was getting rid of me anyway, but I would be free to go. 
I see from the accounts that you are receiving a pension that my mother authorised. I see no reason for that, as you went on to work for Anne Boleyn. She wasn't going to take away that small sum I received annually, was she? Though it wasn't much. Without it, I wouldn't have a chance to bring you, my daughter, to London. But her face softened. But again, by virtue of the love you shared, however unnatural it was, I will continue those payments. I bobbed down. Thank you, my lady, I mumbled, my head bowed. Mary continued. However, Cat, we have no need for your services now. You have been employed as a private musician for the Queen. God rest her soul. But as we have no Queen now, your post is redundant. Your duties were never really set out. Through the attachment my dear mother had for you, followed by Queen Jane. I noticed she didn't mention Queen Anne, but she'd never acknowledged her anyway. Mary's voice became harsh. They certainly allowed you far too much freedom, consorting with courtiers far beyond your station. I bowed my head again. I couldn't look at Lady Mary. I was so angered by her words. I was the equal of all of those courtiers, and would have been whatever my parentage. I was their equal under God, and I knew that deep inside my heart. So, Cat, your position here has ended. The court no longer needs your services. You have one day to say your goodbyes and pack your things. I do not wish to see you from tomorrow.